You're listening to Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time. Well, howdy, and welcome to Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. My friends, uh, family, uh, strangers, enemies, loved ones, aliens listening from other planets, (laughs) we're really uh, Uh, grateful you're here today. Today is going to be a good day because we have... Uh, none other than the one and only Beatrice Chestnut. That was a fun conversation. How was that for you guys? Uh, you know, this was a fun conversation. I had, um, I didn't know Beatrice very well. We had met at an Enneagram thing before, but that was it. So it was fun to really talk to her and get to know the person behind mm. some of the more uh, important, probably works than a lot of people's Enneagram learning journeys, uh, primarily the complete Enneagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that was fun to get to know her, talk with her. She was really kind and generous with her time. So I really appreciated that. Yeah. It's, it's always been, I mean, through this whole project of the podcast, just kind of starting to meet people that I've either read their books or heard them talk or something like that. It's, yeah, it's, it's a bit surreal, but it's the greatest part, honestly, is that they're human we you you guys will hear we kind of got a um get to know you beatrice at the beginning of this episode <laughs> that i looks honestly the best part of the podcast we talked a little bit about cooking and just a normal just a normal human doing normal human things yeah piggybacking off of uh what you just said creek <laughs> dogs um, to goats <laughs> Uh, for those people that have been around for a minute. Uh, OG listeners, yeah. Yeah, Creek, know what you were saying about authors. You know, living in Nashville, uh, from time to time you do run into uh, somebody that is, you know, semi-famous here and there, whether on screen or in music. But Mm -hmm. over the years, I have more so come to sort of get more excited about the authors that I read and get Mm -hmm. more, you know, excited Mm -hmm. about them than actual, you know, TV stars or whatever. Um, but like you said, it was really good to kind of experience the human behind the the book in that, yeah. you know, to sort of normalize, like you said, to make them human, but also to really see the the actual flesh and blood to, he- to hear from mm-hmm. them in this moment afterwards, to sort of bring to life the things that I've read about this person for, for a while, yeah. you know. I think it's really easy, especially for teachers that have been around for a long time, to just get stuck in a script, stuck in what they've always said because it works and it's it's what they're used to saying but being able to um shake things up a bit just just helps yeah and uh we got to hear more about her recent book that she co-wrote with her business partner and teaching partner Aranio Pais mm-hmm. called uh called the Enneagram Guide to Waking Up we were able to get some copies of it from the publisher, uh, which was really generous of them. We were and asleep before the interview, <laughs> and at the end, we were awake. Yeah. It worked. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> and I would say, uh, for those of you that are interested in Beatrice's approach to the Enneagram, but maybe a bit uh, intimidated by uh, the length of some of her previous books. They call this those is probably the book for you. <laughs> the tomes. <laughs> yeah, she's, and she's written a few of them. They're mm, quite yeah. lengthy. Uh, this is a far more accessible and approachable Definitely. take to what she is teaching and uh, talking about on her podcast with Aranio and et cetera. So it, it, it's a resource, uh, a good resource in that way for sure. Yep. 
Yep. Wonderful. And I'd say one of my favorite aspects, even from the book specifically, you know, I think a lot of people have probably heard by now the term shadow, right? The psychological shadow and how maybe each type has a specific way you can name that. But what she does that I think is even more, one of the more unique things of the book is that she names the specific shadow for your subtype. Which was mm. which was cool because then she actually made it more personal for for each of us, as in mm-hmm. uh, Drew and Creek and myself, where she yeah. talked about our specific subtype shadow, which was really cool. So if you're looking forward to that, well, <laughs> hopefully uh, it's not too revealing, but yeah, yeah, it was fun. You mean there's people that listen to this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Aliens, apparently. Aliens. Aliens. I haven't. <laughs> I haven't gotten the intergalactic uh, download numbers yet. Are there yet. alien oh. enneagram teachers? That mm, probably. Is uh, yeah. Out of any field, yeah. I would, of, I would yeah, imagine pro- this based would be the on one. some of our interactions. Yes. <laughs> 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 and I think that's a great spot to end. <laughs> yeah, we better stop. <laughs> yeah. Yep. All right, friends. This is our interview with Beatrice Chestnut. Well, welcome back, everyone, to Fathoms and Enneagram Podcast. I'm Creek, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Drew and Abram, and we have a special guest today, Beatrice Chestnut. How are you, Beatrice? I'm good. I'm good. It's really good to be here. Oh, good. Wonderful. And uh, we we are celebrating something that you are about ready to release. What is that thing? So um, I just, uh, there's a new book coming out that I co-authored with my friend and business partner, Uranio Pais, and it's, uh, it's called The Enneagram Guide to Waking Up, Find Your Path, Face Your Shadow, Discover Your True Self. Yeah. That's a great title. That's great. Yeah. Good title. Very Love good title. It. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so our, our theme this season is about story. It's mm-hmm. about knowing your story, knowing what stories to drop, and understanding the stories of others. So if you could give like a quick, your quick thoughts on that, on, on how the Enneagram helps kind of name those three points. I love the focus on story because I think we are story-making creatures. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Everyone loves a good story. You know, when you're talking to people, it's always good to include your own story as a way to engage people. Mm. And I do think there is a, a particularly interesting and and powerful connection to the Enneagram, which is that our Enneagram types kind of help us realize the story we've told about ourselves. Often Mm. that's a false story or it's based on early experience that's no longer valid, but Mm. that story becomes limiting. And Mm. I think the Enneagram helps us see how we do that. And so we can more consciously tell a new story uh, should we choose to. Yeah, that's Mm. a great answer. Well done. Like <laughs> it's almost all. like you know something about this topic. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's well. The interesting thing too is I started off uh, as an undergrad. Uh, I was an English literature major, so oh, really, uh, okay. so I'm all about the story. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And where did you where did you study that? Uh, UCLA in UCLA, Los Angeles. Okay. Yeah, very good. 
Well, this this is a perfect segue into uh, a little section that we would like to label <laughs> "Getting to Know Beatrice," <laughs> something non Enneagram related, because like you you are on several podcasts, but it's always about the Enneagram. So Drew has a question, Abram has a question, and I have a question that are non Enneagram related. So Drew, go ahead and Great. ask your question. And of course, all of these are challenged by choice, Beatrice. So. And none of these yeah, are really yeah, yeah. in-depth or salacious, but right. um, <laughs> we do think, because I'm sure our listeners know you quite well and know your work, but so we wanted to ask you a few other things uh, just mm-hmm. to get to know you a little bit better. Great. So I would love to know uh, what is a hobby that you are interested in that's not directly Enneagram related? Do you have any hobbies or interests? I do. Um I do. Um, I would say right off the top of my head. So I'm a runner. I like mm, running okay. and I live right next to Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. And so oh, I run, okay. I run there. It's like, it's like wow. really helpful for my psyche to be in that park every day, running three or five miles, depending on how much time I have. Mm-hmm. Um, I love to cook. I would say food is a big hobby, a passion, really. I love to eat, and that's why I like to cook. Uh, so I love food. I love all things food. I love dining out. And I, I would another thing I would say is I love television and movies. The, the, okay. It could be hard for me to choose among those three, but those are the first three. And music, I would say. I have to add music. Yeah, okay. and I know you yeah. guys are in that world. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Just a boobie. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Well, I think this plays well into uh, the next question uh, that I'd love to throw out there. So, you know, during, let's say, the height of quarantine, what was the TV show that you binged, if you did such a thing? (laughs) Other than Tiger King. Uh, I haven't seen that one, actually. I haven't seen that one. (laughs) That's okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, the funny thing is, during COVID, and I don't know if you guys will relate to this or not, but... I found that I couldn't watch, and I'm, I mean, I love to watch all TV. I'm, I, I like mm. quality, basically. I like quality mm. movies and TV, and of course, we all define that differently. But I just, I like <laughs> a really good drama, a really good comedy, and I've watched a lot of different things. Like, but I found during COVID, I needed to watch something uplifting and hopefully mm. funny. I couldn't yeah. watch anything too dark. You know, I have yeah. I have a strong line to four, you know, so I'm I like dark, but during COVID, like anything too violent, anything too sad, I just felt like I couldn't really go. I needed, you know, during my sort of hours of television viewing, I needed to be laughing or uplifted or something like that. So mm. so I would say it goes along with that. So I would say one of the things I binged watched the most happily was the good place. brilliant okay i'm forgetting I, I think there were a couple others um life in pieces i actually really like it's a good one i check it out huh. um i've been told that it gets less good the l- later seasons but season one is really good tom hanks son is in it colin hanks he's very oh, good okay. in it. oh yeah, he's yeah. Very oh, good. cool yep. is it netflix or uh, it's actually Amazon Prime, I believe. Okay. Yeah, right. yeah. And then, of course, I'm a Ted Lasso fan, you know. Uh, <laughs> yes. That smells like potential, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Love that show. I, I actually, uh, my show of choice was I actually made it all the way through Frasier for the first oh, time really? during quarantine. Throwback. I am a big fan now. Yeah. Uh, and I wow. heard that they're coming out with, the, like, they're rebooting it. 
So wow. that's exciting. Interesting. Um, <laughs> I, li- I like Frazier. I like Frazier. Yes. I was a Cheers fan. Yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So last question from me is, let, let's say, who's someone you really admire? We'll just, we'll just go there. Hmm. <laughs> someone I really admire. Um, like you might get a little like heart palpitations if you were to be right, around. Right, 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 right. And it's funny because it's like, there's so many, it's one of those things, there are so many people I can't, it's hard to focus on just one. Well, I'll say this, you know, I, my first graduate career was in, I I studied communication studies and that could mean different things. For me, it meant Mm -hmm. mass media and politics. So I, my dissertations about Iran-Contra and how everyone escaped blame by managing the news. Um, So one person that comes to mind is uh, Fareed Zakaria. Yeah, Um, okay. I really like his show. I I used to watch a bunch of Sunday shows, but now I just really like his. I just Mm. think that he really focuses on really important issues. I feel like he's a really good interviewer. He's very even-handed. He has his take that he kind of does in the beginning. Mm. And I often think that he speaks to something really important. So, and I think because I, you know, I care about what's happening in the world and I care about good journalism, I, I think he's, he's an example yeah. of it. So, okay. So the more important question attached to that is if he was coming for dinner, what would you cook? <laughs> oh, wow. I would probably cook something just that I'm good at cooking. <laughs> I, I tend to focus on, um, I'm good at pasta. So maybe I would make like a okay. big salad and some pasta and maybe some appetizers. Yeah. Are we talking like a red sauce or a white <laughs> sauce? <laughs> I'm a foodie. Just so yeah, you know. I am a bit of a foodie. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, although I'm not a big meat eater, I make a big, I make a really good carbonara. I kind of have mm. my own special spin on it. You know, yeah, so I might, right. yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that that satisfies me. That now satisfies I'm hungry. Me. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> right on. Well, I think that concludes this uh, this just fun <laughs> section of getting to know you a little bit more for our listeners and yeah, us, yeah. which is fun. Thanks for sharing all that. Yeah, kind of shifting gears here. You know, back to your new book. Congrats again. What would you say that is the sort of inspiration behind this one? You've written other books before, but what's what's the inspiration behind this new book? Well, it's interesting. When I wrote The Complete Enneagram, like the good two that I am, I kind of wanted to be all things to all people. I wanted it to be sort of an introductory book that would bring people into the Enneagram, especially therapists, psychotherapists, which I think, I think sometimes they don't know about the Enneagram and they should uh, because it, it's a big help. But I also wanted there to be some juicy stuff in there for Enneagram veterans, you know, people who had been studying it for a while. But in the end, I had to kind of let go of the introductory goal because it was sort of, let's face it, it was kind of dense and there was a lot in there. And mm. so I, I think it can be a little intimidating for people who are new to the system. So mm-hmm. um, so after that, I kind of had this thing in my mind of, I kind of want to write a more introductory book. I want to kind of bring people, I want to mm. welcome people to the system because I think it's uh, such yeah. a powerful tool. So the inspiration though, um, I, I was approached by a publisher um, and it was a, he's a funny guy. He he just emailed me and said, "Can we go to coffee?" Because he lives. We both live in the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm. And he said, "I have an idea for a book, and I'm wondering if you would write it." And it was kind of an introductory book. And he, his idea was for it to be uh, short and accessible. And I thought, mm-hmm. "Have you read my book? Like, <laughs> I'm not the guy. If you want a short book, you know." Yeah. 
Um, that's uh, it's hard for me. I, that Mark mm. Twain quote always rings true for me. That you know, mm-hmm. sorry, I didn't have time to write you a shorter letter. Um, right. It's like I have to write this much to write that much. But I wanted to take on the challenge because I really wanted to. Uh, make an introductory book. Now, I also didn't want it to be another book just describing the types, because Mm. let's face it, there's plenty of books out there that just Mm, say here are the nine types, right? They're good books that do that. Um, I wanted it to be something that focused more on the question of, okay, once I know my type, then what do I do? So I Mm. really wanted it to be uh, about the growth path for the types. Mm. And so I thought a shorter, accessible book, something that's fun and inspiring to read, but at the same time substantive and not pulling any punches when it comes to here's the hard work that you have to do if you really want to grow. It really sort of, because I think too often we can err on the side of thinking supporting people and their inner growth is making them feel good, you know, and of course our ego wants to feel good. And and I think sometimes Mm -hmm. we have to recognize that we have to go through a period of discomfort. Uh, And so I wanted, but I wanted to frame that for people and hold people in a process that was like, okay, the good news is there's this really powerful tool that can really help you. The bad news is you may have to kind of go through some discomfort uh, on Mm -hmm. the way to your reaching, uh, your Mm -hmm. more knowing more of all of who you are, but the rewards are many if you do that. So I wanted it to be sort of both a, a uplifting, positive message, but also something that was very kind of just truthful and straightforward about what the work mm. is. Yeah, so the, your first book was The Complete Enneagram, and this one is, uh, it's not as complete, you know, hitting all of the things, <laughs> as, as, you, as you mentioned, which I really resonate yeah. with as a nine, all of the things. Uh, yes. Um, yeah, so uh, one thing I know that is different about this is this was co-written, right? Right. Uh, your uh, work partner, Urania, was on was in on this too. How I'm, I'm curious, how was that experience with you guys working together in writing? Yeah, yeah. Well, we've worked together for a few years now. So the I, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring him in was our work is so intertwined. I mean, we do so much teaching together. I didn't want to worry about like writing something that was based on things I'd learned from him. Sure. without mm. sort of having so i thought it's just going to be easier and better mm. uh mm. and it's and i uh it's really enjoyable to work with him and so i thought so that i thought that would be a good thing sure and it was ended up being a good process i mean it's always you know as as you know drew it's always a difficult process in some ways it's challenging <laughs> but it yeah. was it was good i mean i i always see, i often see writing as an iterative process so I would write something, he would comment on it, I would edit it. Mm-hmm. Now, English isn't his first language, so originally I thought I would need to write the first draft of the chapters and then have him sort of comment and edit and change things. But because of the deadline and how we got behind, mm-hmm. I needed to ask him to write the, the rough draft of uh, three or four uh-huh. of the type chapters, which he did really well. And mm-hmm. because editing is easier for me than writing, and so I did, while I did edit it to make it all in the same voice, and uh, you know, just because the English isn't, and he writes excellently for someone who is mm-hmm. has it, uh, yeah. English mm-hmm. as a second language or third language. But uh, so I would go through and edit, and then we would kind of work on Taylor. So it was it was a good mm-hmm. process. I mean, again, it's always challenging, but but it worked. You you did a lot of work for your first book, and 
Is there anything that you feel like you have perhaps like shifted slightly on, whether it's language or, I don't know, perspective on a type or, or some other part of the Enneagram that you kind of included into this book? Um, good question. So it's funny. Um, in the first book, I didn't mention wings at all. Oh, and I guess that's true. a lot of people will say like, well, what about the wings? Or I'll even get Amazon reviews saying, well, I disagree that wings aren't important. <laughs> <laughs> and you guys may know I have a slightly different take on wings than, uh, mm. than is sort of a dominant theme out there in the Enneagram community. So this time we included them, but in line with how we think they're um, most usefully employed. So I would say that. And I think I've even gotten clearer. It's only gotten more clear, like, for instance, how I see the airlines and the wings Mm. as growth paths in different Mm ways. Um, So I think there's been even more clarity about that. And I think if I, in fact, I want to kind of do an update of the complete Enneagram where I clarify and make even more um, usable the part on using the arrow lines Mm. as, Mm. uh, and there is a little bit of that um, in the new book. Yeah. Mm. And calling it the more complete Enneagram. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So I did have another question. You know, it is is your the title of the new book uh, names that this is a guide for helping us wake up to, mm-hmm. by using the enneagram. How how would you recommend somebody uh, go about engaging this book? Like reading it from start to finish, or do the introduction in their type chapter, or you know, small sections to practice. Yeah. How would you how would you just recommend somebody engage? You know, the introduction's really short. I do think it's uh, I, I like to start with the introduction and I think uh, as a self-preservation dominant person, I like order. <laughs> so, uh, so I would say, but it's really short. It's not it's not a big speed bump on the way to the type chapters. I do find that no matter what you say, people go to their own type chapter first. Right. <laughs> uh, and I think I think that's totally fine. I think mm-hmm. you just read whatever chapter is most salient for you and or then read the chapter that your partner is or your best friend. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I think you can, I don't necessarily think you have to read it through from page one to the last page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it does pose a problem though. Writing on the Enneagram, how do you, how do you structure it in a way that people will access it most effectively, right? <laughs> it was yeah. just hard to do, mm. hard to do. So I want to talk a little bit more about this notion of falling asleep and waking up. It, it's kind of a consistent mm-hmm. thread through the book. Mm-hmm. And you even kind of, uh, compare us or the reader to zombies, <laughs> which is kind of fun. <laughs> so Thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder if you could tease that out a bit for us and for the listeners. How are we like zombies? Why have we fallen asleep? And how do mm-hmm. we wake up? Yeah. I know it's a big question, but just give us some insight into what you mean by those terms. But I appreciate you asking that question because I do think that's at the heart of why we would even use the Enneagram at all. Uranio and I are really rooted in the Gurdjieff work. As an academic, I always naturally look look back to the seminal authors. Mm -hmm. That's where you start, in my my mind, coming from the academic world. And Gurdjieff, you know, one of his central themes is that it too, it's a little bit twofold. One is that what we humans call kind of normal waking consciousness is actually a kind of sleep or sleepwalking through life. Mm-hmm. 
that we are by definition when we're identified with our personality we are you know only operating from a limited capacity compared to what we're full really capable of so it's like we exist in a kind of default mode according to what worked for us in the first place you know early coping strategies and they become so familiar and comfortable that uh, we just kind of keep doing the same thing over and over again, um, and then we don't want to get too far out of that because it's painful. The personality is a defensive self-structure, yeah. uh, and it protects us from injury. And so, but we go to sleep when we, you know, get stuck in that default mode and don't realize that we're in it. Um, and mm, so, yeah. to the extent that we think we are our personality. Uh, we're kind of on autopilot, you know, we're, we're not fully awakened to all that we can be. And so I think that's, or, I mean, Gurdjieff also uses the metaphor of we're machines. Uh, yeah. we're very, we operate very mechanically, and but we're different than other machines because uh, we're machines that can learn that we're machines and mm-hmm. uh, observe yeah. ourselves as machines. And it's through recognizing that how mechanical we are that, that we wake up. So, so yeah, I think we're, we're it's you know the zombie metaphor came up kind of spontaneously, but it's a little bit like I, I like the way Tom Condon puts it, like we're in a trance. Uh, when you're in the trance of type, when you are I- so identified with your personality, you think that's all you, uh, all of who you are, and you're just living in that without a kind of wider perspective on that. That's just kind of a limited state of consciousness. Mm. Yeah, we throw around language a lot in the Enneagram community. That is like, oh yeah, I know what that means. But then when we actually <laughs> think about what does that mean, you get asked to uh, define it, right? It, then, uh, well, you know, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, so for you, how, like, what is waking up and how do we know we're awake? I mean, not to get all matrixy, but like <laughs> the new trailer came out though. So yeah. What? Ooh, yeah. Yeah. A, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to, I know where I'm yeah. going after this. I'll send you yeah. the link. Yeah. 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 Okay. Perfect. Yeah. So in, how do we know we're awake? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. how do we know we're not still just fooling ourselves with the same old patterns and the same old yeah. structure? Yeah, really good question because Naranjo has a great quote in, in um, Character Neurosis, and I'll get it wrong, but he says something <laughs> like, we're blind to our blind spots and blind to the degree of thinking of ourselves as free, you know, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. we don't recognize this. So I think I often say that waking up happens when we allow ourselves to engage our pain and to look at things and again it's the archetypal Jungian idea of facing the shadow and all the stories and speaking of story and myths and literature Mm. it's the visit to the underworld it's the slaying the monster it's the rite of passage the initiation it's when you go through something difficult and Mm. and it's uncomfortable for us to look at the parts of ourselves that we don't want to see that we think uh, of as unacceptable and it's uncomfortable to feel the pain that our personality developed uh, as a way of, of keeping us from feeling pain, right? So the personality is a pain avoidance mechanism. And so if we seek to move beyond our personality, uh, we need to allow becoming fully aware of what our personality is doing and you know, what's embarrassing or humiliating about that or, or mm. what makes us sad or what makes us frustrated with ourselves, what we criticize ourselves about and have that whole process of reckoning with all that as a way of 
uh, waking up. It's funny. Someone asked me recently, like, you know, how do you know you're doing the work? And, and one thought I had is, well, I I need to be always making myself vulnerable somehow. Like when I give a talk, I often somehow work in a story that makes me feel humiliated. Right, mm-hmm. because I feel like if I'm telling a story in front of a group of people that makes me embarrassed and kind of cringe inside, and sort mm-hmm. of like, oh gosh, I, you know, I barely want to tell a story. I know I'm. I mean, for me as a two, I know I'm not caught up in pride because I wouldn't. You know, pride doesn't like that. You know, mm-hmm. and it's hard yeah. to stay fully uh, asleep and kind of feeling too good about yourself if you're sharing something with people that is painful to share and hard to sh- hard to show. This is not the Enneagram content you see on Instagram right now. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Engaging right. pain, <laughs> leaning into your shadows, yeah. right? And so, but it is so important. Yeah, and critical to the inner work that can be done w- when using the Enneagram. Right. So when you wake up, right, uh, then... Uh, your book tells us through each chapter on type, there's a path. And so I'm curious. So for instance, you, I'm looking at, let's pick on Abram for a minute. How about this? <laughs> All right. Not really pick on him, but um, you know, at the beginning of the chapter, you, you outline uh, what the path is for each of the types, right? So for the type nine, you say the path from sloth to right action. And so I'm just curious, help, help us understand what, what path you're referring to here, you know, as we wake up, uh, what that looks like for each type. You don't have to go through every type, but what does that look sure. like? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Great question. In the beginning, I kind of had the idea of using the idea of the hero's journey. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. But we actually, because I love that idea and I yeah. love myth and fairy tale. And, you know, I've, I've done, I do a workshop every year when we can meet in person in Florence on Dante's divine comedy in the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just, uh, I love the idea of a journey or a process. And I think the Enneagram is both a typology and a map of process. Mm. You know, I think you can map the hero's journey onto the Enneagram in Mm -hmm. interesting ways, but we had to let go of that because we really wanted to keep it even more simple than that. And when you get into the hero's journey, there's a lot that gets complicated kind of quickly, even though it, there is a kind of core simple idea behind it. So we kind of simplified it and, and thought of each type has kind of a three-step path or mm. a three-step journey. And the first step is kind of that aha moment when you find your type and you start noticing the patterns in yourself that were already probably pretty conscious, you know? Like, you know, for me, when yeah. I found out I was a two, you know, it's like, you want everyone to like you. Yeah, that, that's pretty true, <laughs> you know? Can't <laughs> deny that. Yeah. And the things that you kind of know you do. Then the next step of the journey is facing the shadow. So then it's about making less conscious tendencies more conscious. And so it's that's a big part of the waking up is the, oh, like I didn't realize I was doing that, you know? So for nines to realize like, you know, what's going on with the fact that I don't feel anger, like, you know, mm. or I'm not aware of it or I avoid feeling it. What's going on that I'm, you know, so easygoing that I don't, follow my own agenda, that I don't make myself important, that Mm. I don't assert what I need, but I just sort of more go along and go with the flow of what others needs. So getting in touch with what's going on there, which, which involves, you know, sort of 
highlighting unconscious tendencies for people and saying, here's what to do to become more conscious of this. Like, ask yourself this question, you know, talk with your friends about this topic, you know. Um, and then we have a section on here's the pain that needs to be felt, you know. Now, again, we, we, we may not be able to say, like, here's exactly what this particular person who identifies with type 9, what their pain is. But we can mm. we name some general themes, you know, look out for this kind of feeling that you may not be fully in touch with or, or explore this feeling, you know. Um, and then we talk a little bit about the passion. And again, because the passion tends to be unconscious in it, us, and yet it's this core emotional driver that kind of keeps the whole personality in motion while yeah. we're not aware of it. So becoming more aware of the passion as a way of starting to aim for its opposite, the higher virtue. Mm. Uh, and then the third stage of the process is kind of aiming for the high side. You know, we, we wanted mm. to be really clear that if you read your type chapter, it doesn't mean you're done. It doesn't mean you're in enlightened or anything Mm, but you know if you for me for instance it really helped me to become more aware of pride when i understood humility you know because pride's a tricky one for a lot of twos to understand a lot of people to understand what that's all about for twos but when i understood what humility is Mm. it's like oh like i may Mm. not be there yet but it gives me something to aim for and it helps me see what the opposite of pride is which helps me get more in touch with all the indirect ways that my pride manifests Yeah, Mm -hmm. I love that. It helps set trajectories for each of the types that give enough latitude, probably for the particularities of, you know, any one person, because, you know, like, I'm a dominant type three, so not all threes are alike, right? But but it does set a trajectory of growth and development. Um, So yeah, I, I think that that's, that's a rich contribution. Thanks. Hmm. You do a lot of you do a lot of coaching and stuff like that. How does this framework inform how you approach someone who's coming to you for Enneagram help? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, a an outgrowth of the fact that, you know, I worked for about 20 years as a psychotherapist with people. Mm. And, you know, I never, I never was a therapist that didn't know the Enneagram because I learned the Enneagram much before I went to school to become a therapist. Mm. Um, so I always had the Enneagram in my mind when I was learning psychology. Uh, interesting. Um, yeah. mm. So I always think with the Enneagram. And so I think with people, I was really always, you know, wanting to go to, okay, what, is, what, do, what do they need? You know, where are they? How can I meet them where they are? And what do they need to do to grow, to become more conscious, to become aware, more aware, to, you know, deal with whatever challenge they're dealing with? And so I, I think therapy in and of itself, in, in, in my view, and the way I, I practice it, is all about making the unconscious more conscious. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think I... Uh, I think of that all the time when I'm working with people of what does this person need to accept more about themselves, you know, need to give themselves more grace around. What do they need to see that they're not seeing? What do they need to own that they're not owning? Sometimes that's strengths and positive qualities that they're not owning. Uh, Mm -hmm. But how can they become more conscious and how can that consciousness be part of what liberates them? I'm super curious about, you said uh, earlier that you see the Enneagram as a typology, but also a system of process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would say, I think we could all agree that the most popular understanding of the Enneagram online seems to be just that first mm-hmm. part. Any, it see, I'm curious, why do you think that is? Uh, and I bet it has to do with not engaging pain uh, and people not being ready for that. <laughs> um, but yeah, well, I just would love to get your input on 
why it went that direction. You know, I know there was like a previous rise with the popularity of it back when it first came, you know, to the U.S. But yeah, just curious about your thoughts on why it is like it is right. now. Right, right. I think that, you know, not, not everyone who studies the Enneagram or the nine types gets interested on the level of, say, reading Gurdjieff, for instance. Uh, and Gurdjieff is the source that I think talks the most about that. You know, like he said, this, the Enneagram is a symbol of perpetual motion. You know, he said it's the philosopher's stone of the alchemists. You know, mm -hmm. he said, if you know how to read the Enneagram, it makes books and libraries entirely unnecessary. So, <laughs> so there's a lot going on there, you know, right. and I often say, I think we've just like, you know, we've just skimmed the very surface of decoding all the Enneagram has to, to offer us. So I just think that it, that, it, that's more complicated. It's not. Uh, it doesn't lead to as much sort of uh, sort of readily accessible insights. You know that are like, wow, that's interesting about me or about this person I know. And I think the way the Enneagram came to us in the modern era, you know, from Echazo through Naranjo, uh, and then Naranjo's sort of big contribution, beginning of like sort of refining the type descriptions into mm -hmm. types that were so uh, you know interesting and accurate in their in the power they had to to shed so much light on on us and and like you say people are ready for different levels of inner work you know some people maybe just want to have fun with it mm -hmm. you know and I, I i try not to judge those people and i think I, I i do a pretty good job because i i being a therapist i think you know people can only do the work they're motivated to do you can't do it for them you can't push anyone to do inner work mm -hmm. and i think that some people just you know they may not they may have their own like you said not wanting to feel the pain they may have their own barriers they may not even be aware of and i think that you have to be pretty motivated to really do the work and mm. um, some people are you know more motivated to look more deeply than others and i think that's okay i think the only danger is uh, that the Enneagram gets treated too superficially. And so people either misuse it or they think they know it and then they try to become a practitioner of it when mm -hmm. they don't know it well enough and that might not be good for the people they work with. So I do think there are some dangers associated with it, but I also mm -hmm. think that, you know, it, there's different levels of engaging with it. And mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's the thing I love about it is it's endlessly deep. I mean, if you want to, mm -hmm really deep inner work, you know, and we have, we've developed a, a levels of awareness model that's mm -hmm. based on the Enneagram symbol itself as mm -hmm. a map of process. So we utilize that. And when we do some of our inner work retreats in terms of helping people see sort of where they are on this map uh, right. as a map of process. And one of the things I love about uh, and why I think I've gotten so in deeply interested in Dante's Divine Comedy is because I think he has both in that, in his mm. masterwork, you know, he has the, the types are there, you know, he has something to say about the fact that you can get wrath can be your thing, you know, and you can be <laughs> wrathful and here's what it's going to look like if you're yeah. at a state of consciousness where you're completely in your personality. Mm. Uh, and then he also has the map of process because it's a journey. Uh, it's a journey down to yeah. the pit of hell, and then it's journey up the mountain, you know, mm. and the purgatory is all about doing the work. I mean, and it's, it's mm. 
it's it's amazingly similar to the Enneagram in that he literally talks about purging the problem and aspiring to the high side. And then he also has the the higher side, you know, the paradise piece. So, mm. you know, I see those as this three states of consciousness and that purgatory a lot about the work we're trying to do, but not everyone wants to climb the mountain, you know, mm. and I think, I think that's okay. I just think it's good for us to be really clear on, yeah. on what we're doing with it and, and where we're at with that. Mm. Yeah. The language I've been using recently is uh, perhaps accurate, but maybe not helpful. Like, <laughs> yes, accurate that I'm a four and I'm wearing black. Okay. <laughs> accurate, not helpful. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, maybe it does yeah. reflect the state of my heart, but uh, oh well. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyways, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we all, of course, uh, always need to be on guard around stereotyping. And I think that's another yeah, one of the bad exactly. effects of some of the superficial treatments yeah. because, like, I don't know if you know, but I'm I'm a fierce protector of fours <laughs> because I think they're over pathologized, even mm. like within the Enneagram community. And so part of when I wrote the complete Enneagram, that was the chapter I wrote the most with the most intense desire to make this type understood mm. uh, in a way that I think sometimes it's misunderstood. I often say that fours are over pathologized and twos are under pathologized. Mm. Ah, interesting. interesting. Yeah. Wow. And just just for the audience pathologize, can you just give a quick definition? Yeah. Sure. Like I'll give you an example. One time at an early Enneagram training I was at as a student, um, a guy stood up and said, Yeah, my wife was diagnosed as a four. Right. So <laughs> this like it's in a DSM you know, five, I think. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. Um, you right. know, someone asked the other day at a QA we had, um, I've heard that sexual fours usually have personality disorders. You know, it's like, well, oh my word. Actually, all the types, you know, have their <laughs> wow. correlates with the personality disorders at lower levels of awareness. So I just think I, I think because in our culture you know, being a three culture, we tend to, all, different people have different unconscious negative biases against being emotional, you know, mm. and being in touch mm. with pain and surfacing that pain for other people. I mean, fours often have a story in their family where they were in touch with the shadow of the family mm. and truth tellers that they are wanting to help people and say, hey, people, look at this. And of course, everyone makes them bad for it. So I mm. think there's a way that people have sort of an unconscious or implicit bias around fours because they have their own fear of their own feelings in mm. one way or another. And mm. so I find that all, all types get stereotyped, unfortunately. Uh, but I think sometimes fours get there's a little bit of an edge. Uh, and, and I think, mm. I think too, sometimes people don't understand how they don't understand the four mode of defense, you know, like mm. how feeling actually focusing on inadequacy can actually be a defense, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I sometimes describe it as a, I create a black hole so that nothing can, I just, I just suck everything in and then it just, nothing gets to me. And, and I, yeah, yeah, I suck people into my, darkness and then i don't have to engage them it's great oh. um. <laughs> and we have our poll quote for the episode too by the way there it is yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i sucked everyone into the darkness so i don't have to engage them yeah That's amazing yeah. That's okay and, and just so happened oh. my lights went out <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> Thank you.
We are, are, you know, our listeners have, we've heard a lot of different perspectives on the instincts or the instinctual biases, the subtypes. And I know that the subtypes have been a central theme to your work, right, with the Enneagram. Uh, your right. name is yeah. pretty much associated, right? Maybe more than anybody else's when it comes to subtypes. Um, so I just wonder if you could briefly explain to our listeners your, your sort of approach. Sure. So, you know, I learned the Enneagram in 1990 um, from David Daniels, who had started one of the first Enneagram schools. And I went through their training a few years later. And in the first 14 years that I studied the Enneagram, the subtypes were talked about a lot. But in my view, I couldn't see at all how they were helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, I found them sort of not to have much substance or there was like no there there. Like the descriptions to me weren't at all as articulated or helpful to my growth as the main type descriptions. And I, I just kind of felt like I don't really get it. Like I don't really know what my subtype is. I think it might be. I thought I was a one-to-one -one or a sexual two. Uh, but I wasn't really sure. And I even got to the point, like if I was at a conference or a training as a, you know, as a participant, when they started talking about subtypes, I would leave the room up oh, time mm. to take a break. Because mm. to me, it was almost like had the emperor has no clothes here. Like there's nothing, it just, there's no substance to this and different mm. teachers say different things. So, you know, and again, I did, I never, I, when I come to the Enneagram, it's always about what, how does it help you grow? You know, how, what's, what's, how does this concept or this theory, how do you apply it to, to further your growth? And I didn't find anything in the subtypes that I could get any traction with in terms of my own growth. And then everything changed in 2004 when we, we had invited uh, any, uh, Claudio Naranjo to the International Enneagram Association Conference that, that year was in Washington, D.C. And he brought like 15 of his you know, and he and I've done his SOT training since then, and he works with a world class, like Gestalt therapists, drama therapists, really wow. uh, amazing people. And he brought them all, and we did, you know, all, like 350 of us did three mornings on the subtypes. Now, as you probably know, you guys, I know, are really, really knowledgeable about the Enneagram and its history, but Claudio had been kind of alienated from the Enneagram community for many years. Now, part of that was right. self-alienation, so it's mm. not like mm -hmm. uh, it was sort of by his own choosing, but he'd been sort of away for a while. Mm. And I think in that time from when some of the sort of early subtype theories got Put out there, he had really developed. I think through all his many workshops and all his work, and uh, you know, he had really developed a new understanding of the subtypes. And so, what he taught in those three days just blew my mind. Mm. And when they told me, so they told me what subtype they thought I was. Right? I said, mm. "Well, they had you say what type you thought you were." And I said, well, I don't really know. I'm pretty clear on that, but I think I'm a sexual too. I don't know. But they came up to me and they said, we think you're a self-preservation too. And I noticed my defenses go up, right? Because mm. the day before I had remembered him describe, he went through, he described all 27. Mm. I remember what he said about the self-preservation too. He said, it's a childlike character, mm. right? And I remember literally thinking to myself, a little thought bubble above my head. Oh, that's not me. I'm not childlike, right? Mm. Mm. So... 
when he said that, I was like a little defensive. But luckily, I'd been in therapy long enough that I saw my defenses going up. And I Mm. said, okay, self, put down your defenses (laughs) and open up and just let this in and at least consider it. So I asked him, I said, this guy, he was, I think he was from Italy, one of Claudio's assistants. I said, well, why do you think I'm a self-preservation tube? And he said something, and I'm going to cry when I say this, because it always makes me Mm. really moved. He stood next to me and he said, when I stand next to you like this, I do not think you're going to protect me. I think I need mm. to protect you. Wow. And it was like, whoa, like went through my whole body, this wow. just recognition of like, whoa, like I, I wanted like this little part of me wanted to argue with him. Like this, I almost felt this like mm. <clears throat> little cartoon character, like, oh no, that's not me. But I, mm-hmm. I couldn't, it was like, no, sorry. He, he named it. He wow. nailed you. Like he got it. And so then when I learned about what that meant and mm. it was nothing I had ever heard before or seen written anywhere and, or sense in any other description when that the, the clarity mm. and nuance of what he described to me about myself that was completely unconscious up until that point, how mm. fearful I was. Like mm. I sort of knew I was fearful, had no idea how much I was repressing it, right? Mm. Uh, how mistrustful I was of other people. And I, l- luckily at this moment when I learned it, I had been, been in therapy long enough that I was on to myself. So I, I sort of knew more. So I remember him asking me, like, how much do you trust people? And I thought to myself, if you asked me that five years ago as a two, I would have said, oh, yeah, I trust people. Cause, and, but, but it really was is I want the image of someone who's good at relationships and so trusts people and creates trusting relationships. But at the moment, I was capable of being more truthful. And I thought to myself, I thought, oh, I trust almost nobody. Mm-hmm. Like I thought of my best wow. friend in the whole world who's a self-pres five. And she's so trustworthy. She's such a good friend. And I don't even trust her. Like, hmm. I don't trust anybody. And it was like, whoa. And wow. so there were, of course, many, many, many more insights that came flooding in, and it revolutionized my my growth work. I took hmm. it back to therapy. I said it. I said to my therapist, I said, oh, guess what? I found out I'm incredibly fearful. And he said, finally. You know, he <laughs> oh, said, when I, when I go get <laughs> you in the waiting room every day, he said, you look terrified. Hmm. And I was like, Whoa. Wow. And so it was it was just a huge opening. And so of course what happened for me is I thought, well, now this is gonna change everything, right? Everybody's mm-hmm. here at the Enneagram conference, a lot of the major teachers, mm-hmm. it changed nothing. Mm-hmm. Right. So all that I had experienced and I, it wasn't only about myself that I had a lot of new revolutionary understandings. It was about a lot of the other types too Mm. that helped me in my being a therapist work, my therapy work. So I thought, oh, this is going to change everything. Like the guy who gave us the nine types in the first place just came Mm. and gave us a new infusion of the 27 types, but no one picked up on it. No, everyone Mm. kept doing it the same way they had done it before. You know, again, no criticism, no judgment. I understand why. There's a lot of reasons why we get into our own flow and there's a lot of reasons why, but to me, it just felt, I felt like I want everyone who loves the Enneagram to have the same opportunity sure. to have this revolution in their self-understanding that mm. I had. Mm. And so I kind of went on a mission and it wasn't easy because Naranjo didn't, hasn't really written that much about the subtypes, right. but I, I transcribed 
five-day workshops he did on the subtypes. I did mm-hmm. everything I could to gather all the information. And again, in his books, you know, he's not very methodical. So like, like he has one book where three of the type chapters have a lot of subtype stuff. The other yeah. six have almost none, yeah. right? Yeah. So there's not really much there. And so, but I did that. And then, but the, here's a, a, what I hope, what I want to say too is, I didn't automatically think, oh, he's right about everything, right? Because I, mm-hmm. you know, I'm an academic, right? So for mm-hmm. me, it's not like if a certain person says it, it's gospel. No, mm-hmm. like we need to <clears throat> test it and talk about mm-hmm. it and see if it really works. So one of the things I started doing is I started teaching little workshops to find out, does this mm-hmm. resonate for people? Like, mm-hmm. do other people have the same recognition that I did when they learned this this version? And they did. And I started getting invited more and more places. And I started, and in the beginning, I couldn't use panels because, you know, being trained in the narrative tradition, I love teaching through panels. And after this, I'm going to be asking you guys to be on panels. Um, <laughs> beware. Okay. Um, but I couldn't use panels because people didn't get this approach. They were still mm. doing it the way they did it before, which, again, in my view, and it's just my opinion, was mm. limited. It wasn't mm. very substantive it didn't have very much meat on the bones right this was like a feast and so what i did is i found film clips for all 27 and Mm. i would go around and i would give workshops Uh, using film clips and people love watching movies and so people would be like oh now again it's it's an imperfect thing was i 100 right about all the film clips maybe not you know and i've kind of i've improved them over time but what i found is people like going wow like mm. now and clarity and people coming up to me saying, you know, this has changed up people finding their type for the first time, you mm. know, you know, a guy in Denmark, you know, crying on the panel because he'd been a three for 10 years and he realized he was a self-preservation four. you know, mm. now I'm not, you know, am I pushing them into saying that? I don't think so. You know, especially since it mm. happened over and over again. And so people finding a lot more clarity. And so, mm. It gathered steam by people saying to me, you really can't even work with the Enneagram in a deep way unless you have this approach because mm. it's so clarifying. Mm. And again, to me, it just added a lot a lot more information. Yeah. Mm. Th- thank you for sharing that uh, part of your, your own story and history. It really helps. Yeah make us understand how you came to your your level of expertise with the subtypes. Um, I want to pull one more little thread on the, on this subtypes conversation. Because in the book, you talk about, uh, you, you go through each of the subtypes for each type in a chapter, but then you also talk about the subtype shadows. And I'm just wondering if you could talk briefly about that, because that's that seems to me a, a, a bit of a unique addition mm-hmm. to uh, this conversation. So if you could just talk briefly about that. Yeah, yeah. Each of the subtypes has its own unique focus of attention, patterns, etc. Now, again, learning that is only useful if it helps us see what we're not seeing in ourselves. Mm. And one of the features, one of the positive features about the subtypes, and I think, again, I think Naranjo's approach, like, again, I, I heard something about things about myself that I'd never heard or never dreamed of and weren't very conscious about. So I think one of the best parts about the subtypes is that they point to kind of the the shadows that you don't want to see the most or the most kind of automatic unconscious tendencies. And like I said, like all these things I learned about myself, like the childlike thing. Oh, let me tell you how much Mm. I did not want to see that in myself. Right. But that's the shadow, right? The shadow of the self-pris too, is that you're trying to evoke 
people to care for you in ways that you do not see. You know, um, I, you know, I, one of the things I had to admit to myself when I saw this, and I was probably in my late thirties was that, you know, my parents were still supporting me financially, you know, and I was thinking of myself as independent and yet there were these unconscious dependencies I had on people. And again, twos don't want to see that. The last wow. thing I want to see is that I'm needy, right? But when we don't want to see how needy we are, guess what? Everyone else experiences us as needy. Oh. So yeah, yeah. it's. I, I thought it was really important to, to include the subtype shadow because it's it, in a way it's the deepest, darkest. Sure, and, sure. And I wanted to name it as a shadow so people didn't, you know, didn't see it as... Uh, so they, you know, saw it as what it really is—that part that we really don't want to be aware of. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm curious with that moment where um, the Italian guy, <laughs> Dante. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The Italian guy at the yeah. that guy. Yeah. Nor Nor um, Nor assistant. That yeah. one. Yes. Oh, that guy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when he said, when he said, I feel like I need to protect you, and that really hit you hard. Why is that? Why did that hit you so hard? And what about that? Because um, I, I mean, I've heard that story from you before. Yeah. And that's always kind of been a question of like, it, yeah. it obviously moves you. And that's yeah. great. I'm just trying to like understand the underpinnings of it all. Yeah, I think it's something about being seen. Mm, you know, I think, I think mm. especially for the, the heart types, I mean, for all of us, to some extent for the heart types, even more so, but for me as a two, it's like, there's this deep desire to be seen and, and met and, and not rejected, I guess you might say. Mm. And so I think that, that he was seeing something in me that I didn't see in myself. He was pointing it out in a gentle way, in a way that my ego wanted to say no way, you know, mm. wanted to totally reject, but he was saying it in a way that was kind of empathic. It was like firm yet gentle mm. in a way that I could hear and get. And it was like seeing something in myself. I didn't see myself and that I needed to see mm. if I was really going to grow and, and being that deeply uh, recognized and again in something that is a little bit shameful but also incredibly revealing mm. you know I mean really in some ways saved my life in terms of I could have been doing Enneagram work for a long time and not get to that deeper level that would really kind of unstick some of the stuck mm. places that I can mm. get would you say there was a sense of like he was naming that like being taken care of is is would that fall in into that category or or not really? I think I think that was more like maybe an additional value add mm. byproduct. I think the core of it mm. was naming something that was true and that was um, that need for protection that it's like, wow, if I did if I'm not aware that I need protection, how am I gonna get it? Mm. You know? I mean, really get it. You know, I might get it in some pseudo ways, but to really get what we need, I think we need to get in touch with that need, you know? Mm, right. And so I think there was a way, and I didn't feel judged by it. And, and it just felt like, and again, I think that it was almost like this visceral recognition. And mm. I think that's partly how, having to do with instinct, you know? And so I think that was part of it is like, he was really speaking to that, the instinctual part of me hmm. that I was not seeing, 
you know, and my pride was blocking the fact that I need protection and I mm-hmm. won't allow myself to be aware of that. And so the whole thing of having someone help you recognize something that really can change everything for you. Would you say then um, maybe a good sign that you are headed in the direction of accurate uh, subtype is that you're averse to the one, the, the one that's the most painful? Is that, I feel like that's what we're naming here. Um, you don't want it to be true. Yeah, and that's probably I mean, why I, it is. Yeah. I, yeah, I think it both rings true when you let yourself truly consider it, hmm. but it, there's something yeah. about it you don't like and don't want to own. It's usually, it's usually a combo. If you're up for it, I wonder if you would be, I, I think I am, <laughs> but would you be up for like sharing, exposing a little bit of light on each of our shadows, the specific subtype for us? Would you be up for doing that? Sure, sure. I didn't yeah, volunteer yeah. for this. <laughs> <laughs> it's up to you. Okay? Uh, I know. No, uh, yeah, I would yeah. love that actually. Yeah. Yeah. Be really good. Yeah. So, so yeah. I'll just go first since I'm the one that brought up the idea, but let's, uh, so I, I uh, identify mainly with sexual nine. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, sexual, <laughs> and this is something, sometimes what happens to me when I tune into someone is I get in touch with the emotion mm. underneath. So, um, um, I think there's a, a deep sadness and fear of disconnection. Um, I think there's, you know, we often say that the, the sexual subtypes are more in touch with aggression, but I think that's different for the sexual nine. I think it's more buried in the shadow, um, but really important. So mm-hmm. anger, anger at being left, anger at not being connected with, anger at not being considered and not being valued enough you know, but again, I think the focus becomes so much on the other and that there's a real loss of self. So there's a lot of good stuff in the sexual nine shadow. It's like your sense of purpose, who you Mm. really are, you know, what you want for your life, you know, um, what you have to offer the world that no one else can. I think all of those things come to me to be uh, in the the sexual nine shadow. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, I, I really resonate with that. (laughs) Uh, it's all the stuff that i don't want to be true but if i don't uh commit to having a voice in the world it will be i kind of make it happen by not participating yeah yeah i've coached a few sexual nines who you know they have so much they have a real superpower uh like i'm thinking of one woman who was a yoga teacher and had her own yoga studio and another woman who was a therapist but you know this therapist was focusing on the her family and on her clients and she really wanted to write a book and she really had something to contribute and it was hard for her to connect to that long enough to really you know, bring it into the world. And so mm-hmm. being able to, and sometimes it, it, you need a little physical separation from the people close to you in, in order to make mm-hmm. more space for you to access that. Yes. Thank you. Okay. I'll go, I'll go next. Um, so self-preservation three, mm-hmm. at least as I've, I've always understood it be my dominant kind of subtype. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, when I learned about the threes, the subtypes of threes and the way Naranjo described them, it was one of the big reasons why I, got really motivated because 
I, I realize that the three we mostly talk about is the social three, you know, that's what yeah. we think all threes are, you know, yeah. and both the sexual and the self-pres are different, you know, and, yes. and as, as I'm sure, you know, and, and so I think with self-preservation three, it's a lot of self-preservation threes often say that they are really anxious underneath, but they don't show it. They don't look at it at all. They yeah, look like so they have true. it all together, which they usually do. But underneath, there's a, a real fear of lacking material security, which you know can be pretty conscious. So we're prob- probably not the deepest shadow, but the shadow being, like, I, if I stop, the world won't happen. The people around me won't get what they need. Yeah. You know, if I slow down or allow myself to stop, bad things will happen. It'll mean I'm a bad person. I mean, cause the self three doesn't only want to look good. They want to be a good person. Yeah. And that puts a lot more pressure on. It's not just about looking good. It's about actually being good. And so that's like, you know, much more pressure than the average three, because you've got both that self-preservation instinct and the a self-pres thing and it's also a fear of sh- being seen to show off yes um, that need for recognition it's like you got to put that under wraps because that's not okay that's not yeah. part of being a good person is not being vain and so it's like hard inside because you want to be seen but it's not okay to want to be seen yeah mm. it's so true i i want uh, if I'm uh, in my more honest moments, I want people <laughs> to be impressed with me, mm-hmm. to find me valuable and worthy without me having mm-hmm. to do anything in terms of advertising or promoting myself. Yeah. And uh, that does come with this, uh, I feel a sense of perpetual kind of pressure and anxiety mm-hmm. um, that's beneath the surface that I don't, most people never ever see, right? And, and I feel it uh, most acutely with my family. So, you know, mm-hmm. married, I have five kids. I feel a, a tremendous weight of responsibility that if I were to ever <laughs> stop doing anything, <laughs> mm-hmm. it would all implode, you know? Mm-hmm. And and sometimes, so sometimes I'll even, I'll come to my office, you know, after getting all the kids off to school, I'll get, in, I'll get into my office and then, you know, I, I'm sure I look very put together and calm, cool, and collected. And I get in my office, I'm like, oh, you, know, like <laughs> you got to breathe, buddy. You know, yeah. you're going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I feel that deeply, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I think another thing in the shadow of the self-preservation three is the need to be vulnerable and be supported by other people. Yeah. It's like, it's like mm. self-preservation three. It's like no room is left for that. It's like, you're the mm. guy yeah. who's supporting everybody else. I mean, I like the name when, when Naranjo says the name is security. Mm-hmm. I like the way he defines it. The way he defines it is it's like you have an atmosphere of security around you. You're the one people come to for advice. You know, you're the one people seek out because you're going to make them feel okay. Yeah. Well, who makes you feel okay you know Mm. when do you get to kind of stop and slow down and say you drive the boat for a while you know in a more complete way where you really don't have to do anything yeah that's so true i i just had a week ago a work colleague just came into my office and said hey you don't seem like the kind of guy who needs to be asked hey how are you doing are you okay but i just want to ask you that and that it it kind of wrecked me because <laughs> I, I, I wasn't prepared, you know, because I, because mm. I do have this atmosphere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So good. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Sure. Cool. So we'll just move on to the end of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, what? And, um, 
yeah, self-preservation for... Mm. Oh, yeah, my favorite type. Um, and again, yeah. I, I may, you may have heard me say that I almost, I, I almost dedicated the complete Enneagram to self, the self-pres fours. <laughs> um, because they, I mean, I, you know, I... I th- they didn't. They don't exist in the mm. in the mm. enneagram without this approach. At least in the way they're described, and, and mm. I, in a way that, and again, as someone who is a practitioner who works with individuals, it's like I have seen the way understanding the self preservation foreshadow helps the self preservation in a way nothing else around the enneagram will, mm. because nobody gets what's going on. Because we all think it's the social four, and to some degree the sexual four. You know, that you've got to be melancholy in an obvious way uh, mm. if you're four. You know, it drives me crazy when, you know, uh, you know, social media, you will, if you, if you look happy, you can't be a four. <laughs> so I think the self-press four shadow is a lot around, and it's interesting because I sometimes have a hard time helping the self-press four see this, but it's around the masochism. And that's what I, I never saw that in any description of self-pres for before, but it's like this, this idea that Mm -hmm. making a virtue of suffering, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's the way that you prove yourself is by, I can do, I am strong. I can, you know, it's instead of feeling the full force of envy, it's, I'm going to work really hard to get when I'm lacking. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's working really hard being sort of, holding a lot of pain, having a high pain threshold. So not realizing how much pain you're actually in, mm-hmm. you know, Uranio tunes into people's, he resonates, he, you know, he resonates with people's physical, you know, energy. And one time we were working with a woman who was a self-preservation for in Thailand. And after we worked with her, he said, if I were her, I could not walk. The amount of, bo- of pain she's holding in her body. Uh, and again, it's like sometimes taking on the pain of other people unconsciously, and that's partly the interjection. So it's really the path for the self-preservation for to be lighter, you know, to not carry such a heavy load, to realize how you've made a virtue of suffering and you make things harder than they need to be. Mm. You know, when I have a good self-preservation for friend, and I asked her one time, will you take a couple pictures of us, you know, Urania was going to be in town, but I said, please don't make it really hard. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I really just want you to make this really easy. Like, come out, come take the picture, send it to us. Like, cause she would like create a masterpiece over weeks, you know, because there's a, there's a yeah. way of making it more difficult than it needs to be. But again, if you, <laughs> and again, as a therapist, I, I always am seeing like, what's the coping, what's the original coping strategy. And often for the self-pres for it, it's the and I love the way Naranjo put it. He said it's as if the self-pressed fours child is saying to the mother, "Do you see how I'm not complaining? Do you love mm. me now? Mm. See how I'm not complaining? You know." And self-pressed fours hate playing the victim. Mm. You know, the social force too much the victim. <laughs> Self-preservation fours hate the idea of being a victim because mm-hmm. they are going to be the strong one. Yeah. Uh, mm. and it's like that's how they are in love is through being strong and carry, carrying everyone else's burdens but they don't realize the degree to which they're doing it and how much pain they actually are carrying around because they see themselves as stoic and strong. And they, and so they can't let that go and Mm -hmm. and be less uh, masochistic. So that's the really important uh, shadow piece. I think it helps self-press force to see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
I have like six million thoughts in my head right now. Um, <laughs> mm, yeah, I think there's there's a. Um, I was I was in a, a difficult situation during the pandemic and um, in a relationship, and it was really it was really tough. And uh, I was talking to one of my mentors, and and she was like, Seth, relationships are hard. They're not this hard. I'm like. Oh, you mean I don't have to keep suffering mm. yeah. in this? And it was just like a, I, I, yeah. There's an assumption that everything's going to be hard, so like grin and bear it and pretend like it's easy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll, I'll go suffer in the corner and uh, mm-hmm. leave it there. Lots, lots to say on that. Anyways, <laughs> Beatrice, thank you so much yeah. for uh, yeah. entertaining us. I don't. That was the word that came to my head. But. <laughs> Again, suffering. That's your version of entertainment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels great Gosh, to be. Yeah. Uh, there are other things out there. Yeah. Yeah, just, to be in touch with the shadow. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. great. As as my, yeah. so I'm currently in Portugal right now, ah. and so yeah, so the the sun is setting, so the room is slowly getting darker and darker as we've talked about shadow work. Mm, wow. um, <laughs> yes. Anyways, uh, thank you so much. Can you, um, for people that want to pick up your book and get in touch with you? do all your plug things that you would, how you'd <laughs> yeah. like them to contact you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first I want to say, I really appreciate you guys having me on. Um, I've listened to your podcast. I really love the way you interact with each other and mm. the level Thank of you. interest and commitment to the Enneagram. And mm. so I've just really, yeah, I, and I appreciate you guys opening yourself up, you know, to, <laughs> to, to looking at your shadow a little bit. Um, so, Absolutely. so I just want to appreciate you guys. Yeah, so the, um, the, the website is cpenneagram.com um, for our Enneagram school. Mm-hmm. And the book is The Enneagram Guide to Waking Up. And I also have my own website, beatricechestnut.com. It's a little bit more of the business-facing stuff because I still do work with teams and leaders. But yeah. yeah. Uh, sorry, Instagram handle? Um, you know, you or can see I'm socials. not very good at self-promotion. because. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I think it's Beatrice Chestnut, uh, but I know okay. there's a CP Enneagram one. Yeah. Okay. All right. CP Perfect. Enneagram. We'll, yeah, we'll yeah. put it in the show notes so uh, people okay. are sure to find you. So yeah, Good. once again, thank you so much. Thank you, Beatrice. Thank you. Yeah. Thank right. you so much, Beatrice. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. If you found this episode helpful in any way, consider sharing it with a friend or family member. We are so honored to be on this journey with you, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time.